At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up zero to one grams of net carbs, five to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. History of meat is so meaningful, right? Because we see how it was really technology that made a lot of these changes where people started to eat so much meat. And so perhaps we can use that same tool but in this case, hopefully for good. You are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio, and this is episode number 275. Welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. I am your host, Dr. Yami, board-certified pediatrician, certified lifestyle medicine physician, certified health and wellness coach, author, speaker, mother, wife, and human being. I passionately believe in the power of diet, habits, and mindset in sparking and sustaining well-being and joy in our lives. This podcast combines expert interviews and thoughtful monologues to explore plant-based nutrition, lifestyle medicine, parenting, mindset, and other exciting and fun topics. I hope that these episodes inspire you, uplift you, and equip you with the knowledge and tools to live your best life. Are you ready to get started? Let's do it. Hey, veggie lovers. I have such a great episode for you today. Today, I have Brian Kateman. He is doing fabulous work. So you may have heard of Brian or seen his TED Talk. He coined the term reducitarian to describe a person who is deliberately reducing their consumption of meat. In 2015, Kateman founded the Reducitarian Foundation, a not-for-profit organization dedicated to reducing societal consumption of animal products. And he has his nonprofit doing great work. He has a new book coming out called Meet Me Halfway, a documentary of the same title. You'll learn more about that towards the end. But what we talk about in this episode is what reducitarian means, how and why he coined that term. Are we really eating more meat than ever before? Why do we eat so much meat? what's the problem with eating meat? So we really get into some of the issues uh, surrounding factory farming, CAFOs, meat consumption, and some of the things that he's been most shocked about when he's done his research on meat and its impact on our environment. We also talk about marketing, the meat industry, and how the they use tactics to get us to continue to consume meat. But then we get into the good news. How can we make eating meat more sustainable? And he offers us more resources where we can learn more about some of these uh, issues and what we can do. So I really love this episode because even though I myself 
am vegan, whole food, plant-based. I wish everybody could go that way. I know realistically that's not going to happen. And I know that it's just not accessible for everybody. And I know that not everybody even wants to go all the way. So I think that this is a good option for people that they do care about these issues. They do care about the planet. They do care about animals and some of these other uh, human rights issues that are produced by our production and consumption of meat. And so there's there are things that you can do. So this is a really, really great episode to share with friends and family that you know have this interest but don't know where to start. I would love it if you shared this episode with them. Thank you so much if you're a new listener to the show. Welcome. I hope that you stick around, listen to some of the other episodes and share them. And for my longtime listeners, I love you and appreciate you. Thank you for coming back every week. I hope that you love this episode as much as I have. Have a fantastic day. And now let's welcome Brian Cateman. Brian Cateman, welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. Hey, thanks so much for having me. It's great to meet you. Well, this is going to be such a fun conversation, I can tell already, and I can't wait to learn all about you and some of the different tips you have for us. But let's start with the beginning. How did you become a self-described reducitarian, and why did you even coin that term? Well, I grew up in Staten Island, New York, and for those who are familiar with Staten Island, they will not think of it as a sort of plant-based mecca in terms of other parts of New York City. Um, it's not like I was eating swanky, you know, plant-based food all day long as a kid. I was eating McDonald's and Burger King and KFC and whatnot. And that was what most of the people I knew um, ate. That was quite normal. Um, but, you know, I, one thing I really liked about growing up in Staten Island was there was a lot of nature. There was a lot of green spaces. And so um, I kind of quickly became interested in environmental issues. I started to care about the animals that were in those wild spaces. And so by the time I got to college, I would tell people, you should recycle and compost and walk instead of drive and so on. And at some point, I read a book, um, as often happens when our mind is changed. I read a book called The Ethics of What We Eat by Peter Singer and Jim Mason. And it was a really interesting moment because I just had not thought about you know, our food uh, and how it connects to environmental issues and specifically the way that we raise animals for food. Um, and it was just really shocking to me to learn how we raise billions of animals in very cruel and unsustainable conditions that degrades our land and soil and air and so on. And so I did the sensible thing. I decided I wanted to be vegetarian on my way to being vegan. And for the most part, that worked out. I liked living a life that was in line with my values. I found there were surprising benefits. My acne cleared up, hopefully, for those looking at me and having a good skin day. Um, and... But the thing is, I would occasionally sort of fall off the tofu train, as they say. Like I had a Thanksgiving where I had meat for the first time. And my sister, she poked fun at me and she said, I thought you were a vegetarian, Brian. And I remember in that moment, not having the words to describe how I felt, but I felt kind of sad and irked because I was trying. I was doing the best that I could, but I'm flawed. And I decided in that moment to break away from my vegetarianism. So I realized, you know, through a couple of other instances that they're really was a need to reshift, reframe the conversation that we have around meat consumption, that a lot of people think of it as an all or nothing premise, that either you're vegan or you're not. And I know for me, and I know for the people I grew up with, it's hard for them. 
And it's hard for me to be 100% vegan or vegetarian. And I wish that wasn't true. I'm not excited to share that. I'm just sharing my own real lived experience here. And I came to the conclusion that, you know, I'm going to do the best I can. I probably can get to 98% vegan or 99% vegan. I can go pretty far. But I think the average person, it's going to be a tough sell to get them to do that. So why don't we create an idea where we say, okay, you cut back, you know, cut back 10%, 20%. And if a lot of people did that, that would make a really big difference. And it might even make a bigger difference than getting a small number of highly committed people to go vegan. So in collaboration with a friend of mine who was thinking about these issues in a similar way, we came up with the term reducitarian. And it was meant to describe someone who was doing their best to cut back on the amount of meat, eggs, and dairy that they consume, especially those that come from factory farms, which of course is the vast majority of animal products that is produced. Yeah. So that's how I became a, a self-described reducitarian. Yeah. I love that because it is a little different because in your book, you talk about, well, why wouldn't the term like flexitarian be good enough? It is a little bit different because with the term reducitarian, you're consciously focusing on what can I do to reduce my impact on, you know, the harms that are, that are happening to the environment, the planet and the animals. But I'm not going to go as far as say that, you know, I'm going to do this all the time or most of the time. I'm just, I'm just taking steps to that and we'll see where we, where we get. Um, and it's very interesting because I think we all have our different journeys, right? And one of my favorite story that I read in your book was when you went on the date and you had described <laughs> yourself as a vegetarian on the dating app and your, your date was not very pleased when you ordered a steak. It's amazing the, the, the sort of cultural connections we have to different foods. Uh, you know, the idea that a, a, a man would, you know, seem less masculine, whatever that means, because in that one meal, they decided to order a salad um, is, is kind of strange. And yet for many people, they feel pressure to live up to these expectations that we have of food. I really like the, the point you brought up, though, about flexitarianism, because I really am a flexitarian. I mean, that's what I am. Um, the vast majority of my meals are plant-based. But the difference is that most people, in my view, are not going to be flexitarians. They're going to be people who eat, you know, right now, most people eat over 200 pounds of meat a year. So if we could get them to cut back 10 or 20 or 30 or 50% or whatever it is, they're not flexitarians, but they are reducitarians. And it's important to me that we do the best that we can uh, given the, the food system that we have inherited. And I think um, having a, a way for people to start their journey, even if it means they don't go as far as we'd like, is is still worthwhile. Yeah, yeah. It's such such an important concept because some of us that get to that very strong vegan position where we're just like, we just can't take it that anybody would ever even want to eat meat. How can you eat meat after you know these things? But you're right, it's not gonna work for the majority of humans, definitely not the majority of Americans. But I think it is kind of becoming cool. It is coming, becoming a little bit trendy and fashionable to reduce your meat consumption at least, or to, to sometimes swap out the meat burger for the plant-based version, you know? so. But let's let's talk about that point that you're saying. You're saying right now the average American eats about 200 pounds of meat. Are we really eating more meat than ever before? And why do we eat so much of it? 
we really are eating more meat than ever before. And that's a demoralizing statement, but it, the facts are the facts, right? So in 2022, um, the average American ate something like 227 pounds um, of meat, not including seafood, which is probably another 20 or 30 pounds. If you look at you know each year going back, 2021, 2020, 2019, for the last bit of time, there's really this steady trend where it goes up a pound or two each year. But if you zoom out and look, you know, 50 years ago or 100 years ago, we were not eating anywhere near uh, as much meat as we are today. And there are lots of reasons for that. Uh, one of the largest reasons is just simply understanding why people choose the food that they do. And I think a lot of people, perhaps like you and me, who are interested in these issues, you know, think that people are consciously choosing food with respect to maybe environmental issues or animal issues or even their own health. But the reality is that most people choose food based on taste, on price, and on convenience, and to some extent, social norms, um, what other people are eating around them or what you know, cultural associations they have with food. So it's simply the case that due to a number of historical innovations, meat became very inexpensive it got even more delicious, adding lots of salt and sugar and fat, often in fast food settings. And it's convenient. It's, it's really everywhere. So, you know, for all those reasons and others, we're really in a difficult situation where the vast majority of people are eating way too much meat, in, not only in terms of you know, environmental issues and animal issues, but also their own health. In the United States, one out of 10 Americans gets the recommended amount of fruits and vegetables in their diet. And I don't think it's particularly controversial to say that it would be good if people ate more fruits and vegetables, right? But the problem is that meat is at the center of every dish. It's just that's what people are eating and they're not making room for fruits and vegetables. So it's a really tricky situation. But I think understanding the reality of how dire it is um, can inform our activism, and I know it informs my activism. It, it explains why I have created a softball approach to getting people to enter the movement and into their own lives and make some small changes in their diet, because I'm not optimistic that people will be receptive or be able to implement messages around go vegan or go vegetarian or something like that. It's just a little too extreme for most people. It's like, you know, it's like telling somebody you need to change your skin color blue tomorrow. Like you're like, they're going to laugh it off. Like, no, like I'm not even going to consider that because it's too ridiculous. You know, it's like way too far away from my ability and what I see from the majority of people. I like how you pointed out those, those three main things though, taste, price, and convenience. As a pediatrician, I think I would also add habit. Because one of the things that I teach parents over and over again is that children learn to like what they're given. And it's like a vicious cycle, right? Like the more fast food, the more processed food we have, the more we feed it to our kids, the more they get used to eating that. And that that's what they feed their kids. And it just becomes like this cycle of habit. That's just what we learn to like, right? So we learn to like the taste of those foods because that's what we're exposed to since we were little babies. And so that makes a lot of right. sense. That's what people are just familiar with. That's what they're used to. They don't know anything else. Okay, so that's where we're at. Around 227 pounds of meat per person per year in the United States, which means that for those of us that are vegan, there's people eating way more than that because they're eating our share. <laughs> What's the problem with it? 
I mean, that's the thing about about this issue. The the problems are so multifaceted. It's actually to this day still shocking to me how many problems come from us eating too much meat. The basis of it is that because we eat so much meat, the only way to meet that demand is to create factory farms. The way we raise animals for food is extremely cruel. It is not environmentally friendly. We have to clear land to grow feed, to feed to animals, which drives biodiversity loss. We have to feed those resources to the animals and ship them far places, which of course, and through the process of them digesting this food, particularly you know, pasture-raised animals, that's going to result in greenhouse gas emissions, which is you know, contributing to climate change. We have to give those animals water. We have to give um, the land and the feed the water needed to grow. So we have all these water-related issues. I mean, every environmental problem you, know, you can think of is in one way negatively impacted in, in a major way by factory farming. From a health perspective, we know eating too much meat is not good for health. It's going to increase people's chances of certain types of cancers, diabetes, heart disease, obesity, so on. Again, it's not a controversial idea. People need to eat more fruits and vegetables. There's also all sorts of social justice problems that intersect with health. Many um, low-income communities live near factory farms. It pollutes their air. It pollutes their water. Um, there are worker-related rights uh, connected to you know, the folks that work on the farms, that work on the slaughterhouses, often these are marginalized groups with little power, maybe immigrants, um, and the animals themselves, maybe in cages, in sheds, unable to access, you know, sunlight and be outside. Uh, it's in, and we're talking about 70 billion land animals. And there's all sorts of problems related to what is euphemized to be called aquaculture, or essentially factory farming in the sea. So, it's really um, interesting to me as someone who's a part of this movement because I meet people who are very upset about factory farming and they all care about this from different perspectives. For some people, it's the environment. For others, it's health. For others, it's animal welfare. For others, it's social justice. But from my perspective, all of these reasons are valid. They're all important. And it's really why we have to make a shift away from factory farms. And the, the key point here is the only way to do that the only way is to reduce the amount of meat that is produced. And the only way I can see to do that is to get people to cut back on the amount of, of meat from factory farms that they're eating. So that's why it's so important, you know, regardless of a philosophy around veganism or vegetarianism, we're a world in which we're not raising animals at all. At the core of it, there's generally agreement that we have to at least reduce the amount of animal products that we consume. And it's unfortunately going to be a very difficult thing to accomplish. But given the stakes and how much human and animal suffering is connected to this industry, we have to try to make it happen. Yeah, we have to reduce the demand in order to affect the supply, which right now is just going up. And especially, I don't know if you heard about the new high rise that they built in China for pigs. It's like a super duper big high rise that just has pigs on multiple floors. It, it sounds like a nightmare to me. Like that's just incredible. It's so dystopian. I do remember that. I just imagine like, you know, you're listening to this. Imagine you're the tallest building in your city 
and imagine on every floor is a factory farm and that it's just horrifying. And, and you're right to bring this up because I live in the United States and presumably you do too, and many of your listeners do, but there's a lot of places in the world and what's happening as people move through essentially what's called the demographic transition where they're you know, making more money, they're able to um, gain more opportunities, which from a global poverty perspective is a really wonderful thing. They're actually using that money to eat more meat. And so people want to eat meat. And I expect we will see global meat consumption increase dramatically over the coming decades. And so what this means, and then we'll talk more about this, is we have to find alternatives that we can offer to people that will help them make the switch. Yeah. Well, I can already sense what people are thinking. And what they're thinking is my meat doesn't come from a factory farm because I see the commercials, I see the packaging, it shows like this cow on a on a field <laughs> and the cow's happy, the chickens are happy, everybody's happy in nice open green pastures. So my meat doesn't come from a factory farm. What would you say to that? Well, the reality is that in the United States, 99% of meat comes from factory farms. Globally, it's about 90%. So if you meet, if you're in a room with 100 people, only one person should say that they get their meat not from a factory farm. But what you'll find is that a lot of people say that they don't get their meat from a factory farm. And the problem is that it's a sort of kind of, one, it's a wishful thinking where people don't want to imagine that they're contributing to environmental degradation and animal suffering and so on. But it's also a manipulation, as you implied, from the meat industry that designed their messaging and packaging to make people feel as though they're not contributing in a negative way. That isn't to say that there aren't places that do raise animals in ways that I would consider to be more humane and more sustainable. They absolutely do exist. But that percentage is vanishingly small and the meat that comes from those farms is extremely expensive. And I'll share an anecdote with you. For Thanksgiving, my family comes over and they won't eat a fully vegan meal. So what they were going to do was bring their own turkey. And I know that that turkey will come from the factory farm and I would prefer all else being equal for that not to happen. So what my wife and I did was we ordered a turkey from a farm that we would consider to be high welfare and more environmentally friendly. And I visit that farm and I mention that farm in my book and the documentary. And that turkey was like $160, which is at least five or six times what a turkey would cost from a factory farm that you would get basically at any supermarket. I would absolutely go broke truly 100% broke if I ordered meat from that farm on a regular basis. I simply can't afford it. And the average person can't afford it either. So if you're eating 200 pounds of meat, unless you are very wealthy, um, you probably are not getting your meat from a factory farm. And unless you visit the farm, I would be very skeptical of any of those claims. If you haven't actually been to the farm, I would not buy the hype because unless you verify it yourself, it's very difficult for you to know. Yeah. Ugh. Thank you so much for that reality check. I know it's hard for people to hear that, but it's it's just the truth. And so I think that's important for people to know. And now for a very important message. Hey mama, if you are feeling frustrated about mealtime battles, worried that your child isn't eating enough, 
or eating enough vegetables, afraid that your child is going to get some awful deficiency or disease because of the lack of diversity in their diet, I wrote a book that might be for you. A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy is available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook through all major online booksellers. Did you know that most children are born with the innate ability to eat the appropriate amount of food to satisfy their hunger and support appropriate growth? Despite this, parents are still anxious and confused about how much and what to feed their children. In addition, many children are labeled as picky eaters or develop behaviors such as hiding and sneaking food. There's also a growing epidemic of dieting behaviors and eating disorders beginning at alarmingly young ages. In my book, you'll learn the five pillars of healthy eating, how to apply intuitive eating through all the stages of development, lifestyle habits that support healthy eating and body image, troubleshooting and problem solving for picky eaters, overeating and dieting behaviors, how to create and foster a healthy body image in your children, how exploring your own body image and relationship with food will help raise an intuitive eater, and what foods to offer your child at different stages of development. A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy, available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook through all major online booksellers. Are you ready for a fresh approach to feeding your child? For more information, visit dryami.com forward slash book. And now back to the episode. And it just made me think too, like around the holidays, people are just like giving away free turkeys and just, you know, hams. And it's like, oh my gosh, it's just heartbreaking on so many levels to me as a vegan, because the worth of that animal and then things are subsidized so much and made so, you know, end up costing so cheaply that you could just, yeah, just, this is, isn't even worth anything. I'm just going to give it away for free and you win this and whatever raffle, win this and whatever raffle, you know? So yeah, it just really highlights that. You're right. We don't appreciate how expensive meat is in all sorts of other ways in terms of morality, in terms of people's health. There's, there's a lot of costs that are not captured by the price of factory farm meat. Yeah. You're right to point that out. Well, if you could just, if we go a little further into factory farming before we talk about something else, can you tell us what are KFOs? What does that stand for? And what is that like in, in, in reality? Yeah, a KFO is a concentrated animal, animal feeding operation. And there's a, this is actually a technical term. So you could go to the EPA's website, the Environmental Protection Agency, and they will have certain parameters that will define whether a factory, whether a farm is considered a a CAFO, what advocates often call factory farms. At the core of it is high density of animals. So, you know, if you imagine the idyllic version of a farm where there's like pigs frolicking in the grass and there are cows out on pasture, you know, that is not what we're talking about when we're talking about a CAFO, right? Because that's not how the vast majority of animals are raised. How most animals are raised, like we can take chickens, for example, imagine that they're in like a shed, like a warehouse type environment. And there's thousands, tens of thousands on them. I just was in Manhattan yesterday on a very crowded subway. Imagine that times like a hundred and there's just chickens everywhere all on top of each other. 
that is what would be defined as a CAFO. You take a certain amount of land and you put a lot of animals on it and certain numbers will correspond to what constitutes a CAFO based on the EPA's designations. But I think what's important to recognize is that factory farming as we know it has many parameters that are worthy of thinking about. So of course, does the animal have lots of space to roam? No, you're not going to find that in a CAFO, right? But you also might find that the animals don't have the ability to go outside. So they're always in the shed or they're given the opportunity to go outside for five minutes. So now we can call them free range, right? So there's a lot of humane and greenwashing that takes place. If it's not from a third party verification, which perhaps we can talk more about, there's the fact that the animals might undergo mutilations. So just as one example, like it might be that a cow is castrated, for example, or it might be that the cow is branded or that the chicken might have their, their beak trimmed down, right? It might be that they're not handling their waste properly. Think about all of these animals and how much waste they produce. Um, you have pollution of rivers from runoff. You have pollution of the air. And again, there are people often living near these factory farms. So when we think about factory farming, it's important to think about it in a very holistic way. And so while density, like you might find in the de you know, designation of a CAFO is super important to, to think about from an animal welfare, environmental perspective, and health perspective. Don't even get me started on, I'm so scared of like super bugs, all these, we give all these animals low levels of antibiotics and that causes resistance um, from various bacteria. And I'm so scared that like, someone I love or me is going to get that super bug and not be able to get the necessary medication. I'm, we've all gone through this experience with COVID. I worry about putting animals in these confined spaces because when animals are in confined spaces, it increases the chances that you will have viruses that evolve and get transmitted from one to another. And in fact, that's why we've recently seen lots of animals have to be euphemized, culled or killed because they've gotten these diseases and we don't want to, um, you know, we don't want to spread to humans. So it's so hard because there's just so many dang problems with factory farming. And until you really look at it, you underestimate the amount of problems. I just want to share one more thing. Every week I learned something new. I learned a couple weeks ago that many chickens are sleep deprived. They change how much artificial light they receive to keep them up for long amounts of hours, which I'm sure we can all empathize is not um, a high animal welfare standard in part because for some mysterious reason, to my memory, it decreases how much feed that they have, how much food that they eat. And that, of course, is a, a savings. It's cheaper. So it's like every week I just learned something new and shocking about the ways that companies have figured out how to raise these animals in ways that are just as inexpensive as possible so they can sell as much meat as possible. So assuming you think you know a lot about factory farming, as someone who's been doing it for a decade, I learned every like week something shockingly new about this space and the harms and problems associated with it. Yeah, because it's an entire industry and there's a whole science behind it. So just like we've gotten really good at creating all kinds of things like computers, we also continuously learn ways that we can manipulate these living creatures and use them as commodities, use them as 
the product. That's what they're called. They're called the product, you know? And so, yeah, they're scientists doing, okay, well, can we do this to this, the feed and change the light and all of these things to get the, the animal to produce more of what we want and be less sick and need less food. But you're right. If any living creature that you have a lot of in a small amount of space, we're going to be susceptible to infections. I know that as a pediatrician, it's one thing I, I teach parents. As soon as their child starts going to daycare or preschool, I tell them, get ready. They're going to be sick between six and 12 times the first six months. And that's just from exposure. And just think, I mean, there's rules on how many little kids you can have in a room and together with one teacher. It's usually maybe like 12, 15 at the most. Now we're thinking about hundreds, thousands of animals in an enclosed space, very little ventilation. I like how you were talking about being on the subway with all those people. Now imagine being on the subway with all those people, nobody showered and everybody's pooping and peeing everywhere and everybody hates each other because they're sleep deprived. And, you know, we're all trying to like kill each other. That's what it's like for these animals. You know, it's like they're angry, they're depressed, they're feeling bad, they're, they hurt. And, you know, you know, it's, it's a nightmare situation. So thanks for, for giving us more details on that. Well, you've already kind of mentioned a few things, but I'd love to learn more of what has shocked you the most in your research on meat and its impact on our planet. We definitely covered quite a bit. Um, I mean, something that um, I often think about that's kind of surprising is that there are limitations to how much welfare you can offer an animal in part because of their underlying genetics, which is something that I think is quite interesting. A lot of the problems actually come from the fact that there was an, an effort throughout history from some of the scientists that you were mentioning to re create the best chicken from the perspective of their genetics, which basically means getting them to grow as fast as possible with as little inputs as possible, basically food, right? So one of the, the challenging things is that until we change the genetics of some of these animals, and by that I mean source chickens that are called, what are called heritage breeds. These might've been the chickens that our grandparents used to eat, right? They were reasonably small. They didn't have these you know, massive breasts, for example, because that's what you know, people want to eat. I mean, they, they, they're so large, they actually can often crumble over their, under their own weight, but their legs can't support them. Um, so I just find it so interesting to me that at times it feels like factory farming is inherently cruel and unsustainable. Like there's only so much you can do to fix what is an inherently broken system. And just like the genetics is one component, there are dozens of other components that are just really challenging to make um, any movement on. Um, you know, in my in my book, one of the things that I was really intrigued by was just how much effort was actually made to making meat as cheap as possible. Like there was a time in our history where not only could people not afford to eat meat, but it just wasn't available. I mean, there was no, for example, there was no refrigeration and freezer, right? So People might eat meat during that season, but they couldn't keep it during other parts of the time of the year because it would, it would spoil, right? So it's just, there's just all these fundamental challenges that 
people had that I think we in modern day don't appreciate because most of us, if not all of us listening, have a refrigerator and a freezer, right, where we can store lots of meat. There were efforts to get meat from from the the urban the um, the rural environments to the cities. Um, they fitted refrigerated cars, for example, on trains to get to be able to transport that meat from one place to another. And there were innovators. There were entrepreneurs who made their whole livelihoods and businesses centered around what they probably would describe as feeding the world and using technology to be able to um, get meat from one place to another. And then more scientists coming along to figure out how to raise those animals as, as efficiently as possible, putting certain vitamins in their food, putting those low levels of antibiotics. I was really shocked by just the amount of innovation uh, and entrepreneurship that took place. And I think it really it nicely explains why it is that meat is so inexpensive and so ready, readily available. It's really not an accident. People recognize that people wanted to eat meat and there were folks who played an instrumental role in making that happen. And we know about Tyson and Purdue and JBS and many of the companies that exist today that are the primary um, suppliers of meat, but they inherited a history of many entrepreneurs who came before them in making that possible. So I think we'll get more into this, I'm sure, later when we talk about solutions, but I do think it's worth looking at the history because if we can understand how we got to this place, and then I know this might be a sort of generic trite saying, but it's really true. We might be able to understand better how we can get to the place that we want to be. Yeah. I mean, I am an optimist and I'm always thinking positive. Enneagram type seven. So it's difficult for me to believe that there's purposely evil people on the planet trying to like hurt everybody and everything. But you're right. It's just, it's one of those things that we get that ball rolling. We have this mission. We we have the beliefs that back it too, which one of the underlying beliefs, which is something that I addressed in my TEDx talk is you have to eat animals in order to be healthy. You have to eat animals in order to get enough protein, enough calories, enough whatever. And so we have this underlying belief that we need to eat more meat. This is what's going to help everybody be stronger and more fit or whatever it was. And then this ball gets rolling and the ball gets rolling and we create more innovations and we get to the point where we look back and we're like, oh, oops. But it's so far gone that we almost have to keep that belief. Otherwise, it becomes this very uncomfortable cognitive dissonance of like, did we do this whole thing wrong? You know, nobody wants to think that, right? It just feels so discouraging. But thank you for bringing that up. Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Let's talk a little bit about the ways the meat industry misleads and romanticizes meat consumption in our country. And we could even go back a little bit to what you were referring to as far as like masculinity and the messages we get about meat eating. There's so much, um, you know, marketing and manipulation involved in the meat industry. I mean, it's a it's a business, right? And they want people to have good associations with their products. It's everything from the visuals that they display of their really happy animals. Um, you know, I, I I visited a slaughterhouse that I mentioned in the book, and, and you can see in the film, and on the wall of the slaughterhouse is this beautiful mural 
of animals who are so happy and frolicking. There's even one wearing a baseball cap um, of the local team. And it could not be further from reality, from the truth. But the meat industry has an incentive to make consumers um, ignorant about what's actually happening in the ways that these animals are raised for food. Um, there's so much science manipulation. And this is what I find just, um, and I find it all irksome, but I, I'm amazed at this because there's agreement among scientists, right, that um, animal agriculture plays a, a major role in many of these environmental crises, including in climate change. It's something like 14.5 to 18% of global greenhouse emissions come from the way that we raise animals for food. And there is so much just straight up lying from scientists who have been paid off or compromised, arguing that meat consumption is not a major environmental problem, or it's not a major contributor to climate change, or that there are easy fixes we can make, like, like we can just add some new feed out of it. We could put algae in the, in the feed that we give to cows that are going to make them burp less. All these sort of like greenwashing, little tiny fixes that don't actually fix anything. Um, and we see this from, from a health perspective too. Um, I think we all know eating 227 pounds of meat a year is probably not good for us. Um, I don't think there's any doctor on the planet who would say you should have more cholesterol. You should have more saturated fat. Um, that's really good. No, we know heart disease is, is the number one killer, right? In the United States, it's, we eat too much meat. We don't eat foods that are good for us. But you will have um, the meat industry will try to twist the science and make it seem like there's confusion among nutritionists that actually eating bacon and sausages and all these foods is actually perfectly fine for you. When we know it's not fine, particularly at the volumes in which people are eating meat. I'm not claiming that eating one chicken wing is going to kill a person. The problem is volume. We eat too much of it, and the meat industry simply not only ignores it, but twists it. There's an amazing article that just came out quite recently in The Guardian, and there's actually a class that was created. Tens of thousands of people have taken it that was created um, by an advocacy group on behalf of the meat industry, funded by something called the checkoff program, which is money that uh, farmers will put into sort of like a pot that gets used by this program, training people on how to actually promulgate messages that are in the favor of the meat industry. And if you read this article, or if you were to take that class, you would know immediately that the content is complete nonsense. It's just straight up lies. It's not confusion. It's intentional misleading to get people to purchase more of these products. So many um, advocates are trying to counter this information, of course, with our own advocacy campaigns. But I don't think it takes a genius to know who has more money, the movement trying to get people to eat more fruits and vegetables or the movement, you know, try to get people to eat more meat, who has the billions upon billions of dollars. So it's a really uh, big problem that consumers are confused. And I see this with my parents. And it's apparent to me on a daily basis, People are confused. They walk in the bookstore, they walk around through life and they see mixed messages and they, they don't have the expertise or the time to sort this out and they become confused. And then they just default to eating the foods that they want, whether it's because of culture, culture or because of evolutionary history or because the manufacturers have added too much salt and sugar and fat and so on. So 
we're really in this challenging um, situation and I'm grateful every day that there are advocates who are trying to fix it, but it's a real challenge. Yeah, for sure. It made me think of one of Dr. McDougall's quotes, which is, we like to hear good news about our bad habits, you know? <laughs> like, oh, my, my husband drinks way too much coffee and every single time a study comes out, you know, talking about how amazing coffee is for everything. He's like supporting his ways. But, um, you know, it goes for a lot of those things that we know probably we should cut back on, but we we look for our brain, especially latches on to any evidence that, oh, no, actually it's good for me. I should keep doing this. <laughs> so, right, right. Now let's talk about what we can do about it now that we're all sad and depressed. <laughs> <laughs> There's hope. There's some how, hope. How can we make eating meat more sustainable? Well, it's a really good question. And from my perspective, part of it is redefining what meat means. So we, of course, want people to eat more fruits and vegetables and whole grains and legumes. We want people to eat those foods and we want to encourage people to eat those foods. We want to make healthy food available in schools. We want to do all of that, and we should try to make that happen. At the same time, we should acknowledge that a lot of people are not going to eat more fruits and vegetables and whole grains and legumes. It's not going to happen for a lot of people. And I wish that wasn't the case, but I'm a pragmatist. I'm a realist. I want to look around the world and try to fix it within the limitations that I've had. So we need to do both of these things. So one, we have to try. On the other hand, we have to offer people meat that is not from a factory farm, not from the horrific, cruel, environmentally unfriendly conditions that we've been describing. And for me, that means three kinds of meat. And if folks can bear with me as I walk through these three kinds of meat. So the first kind of meat that doesn't come from a factory farm is meat that came from a slaughtered animal, but the animals were raised in more sustainable and more humane ways. So you can imagine animals are not mutilated. They're not trapped in cages. They're not trapped in a shed. They're outdoors. They're allowed to naturally breed. They're allowed to express their instinctive behavior. They're managed in such a way that they're not destroying the land, that they are moved from one piece of the land to another, for example, so that the cow doesn't eat too much of the grass at once so that the soil quality is compromised. There are all sorts of holistic farming techniques that, that farmers and other scientists have created in order to allow for the cultivation of the soil to make it as healthy as possible. In your mind, you think of like really dry, you know, clumpy um, soil. That's not what we want. We want really rich, we want really lots of minerals, lots of oxygen lots of organic matter, lots of worms, all the things that we love about nature, right? So there are ways to do that. Um, and there are, there are farmers that are doing that. So I've been to one of these farms. I've been to White Oak Pasture, which is an incredible farm run by an incre incredible gentleman named Will Harris. I think he's the fifth generation farmer. So it's been in his family for a very long time. And one of the interesting things about Will is that his father actually ran a factory farm, like the industrial kind of farm. But what Will decided to do was go back several generations to the way that his great-great-grandparents were raising animals for food. And so his farm is my, very different from a factory farm. You can see the animals are happy. I knelt down on the floor and I was playing with them in the grass. 
right? You can smell the air. It's wonderful. It smells amazing. It's nothing like a factory farm where you, your eyes would burn. I mean, it's just so, so toxic being in that environment. Um, of course, the downside is the animals are still slaughtered, but they had a really good life up until that point, especially in comparison to a factory farm. So that's one option. Another option is plant-based meat, which I assume many people are familiar with, Beyond Meat, Impossible Foods, right? You mimic the taste and texture of meat using plant-based ingredients. You apply a certain temperature, a certain type of pressure, so on. And in the end, you get this product that tastes like meat and um, smells like meat, uh, but it doesn't come from an animal. It comes from plants. The third option is something called cell-cultured meat. It's also called cultivated meat and in a pejorative way, it's also referred to as lab-grown meat or in vitro meat. And the idea of cell culture meat is you take a cell from an animal. So imagine like there's an animal hanging out and you just take a feather maybe, you take a little biopsy, a mild inconvenience to the animal, but the animal runs off. And you take those cells and you put them in a nutrient-dense environment, which is basically a fancy way of saying you feed them. Like we have cells in our body and we eat food and so on to feed them. We feed them using various nutrients, right? And those cells will multiply and divide. And eventually they'll differentiate. You know, they'll go from being like a stem cell to a muscle cell or fat cell, for example. And then what will happen is you'll get muscle and fat and ground meat, basically. And what scientists are also trying to do is then add texture. So part of the reason why a steak is so alluring to people is it has a very unique fibrous texture, right? So in theory, we would want to create that with these cells. And that's really exciting because that is nature identical meat to meat that came from an animal, but it was created in a facility and not, it doesn't involve actual animals besides that starter cell. So what's important to recognize though, across all three of these different kinds of meat, high welfare meat, plant-based meat, cell culture meat, they all have pros and cons. And that's what's tricky. All of them are more, exp more expensive than factory farm meat. High welfare, sustainable meat requires an enormous amount of land. Um, plant-based meat doesn't taste exactly like animal-based meat. It doesn't have the exact same texture, at least not yet. And cell culture meat is a literal fortune. It's it's so expensive, it makes the $150 turkey look inexpensive, right? We're talking about thousands of dollars. Very, very expensive, heavily subsidized by investors at the moment. And I don't know which of these is going to make a dent in factory farming. I don't know. But I know that these are three options on the table for us. And even if someone is not excited about one or two of those, they are all three of them are better than factory farming. And for me, that's enough. So that's the summary of, of those alternatives. Thank you for that. And I think it's good to have as many choices as we do. And then for people that are able to financially and able to access some of these options, they're also getting very popular, like the impossible and beyond are getting very, very popular, available in a lot of restaurants, a lot of places. And for somebody that hasn't eaten meat in a long time, it really is scary how similar it is to meat. So even for people like me that we've been vegan for a long time, we almost can't eat some of those products because it reminds us a little too much of meat. So I think the technology really has come a long way because at the beginning, when I went vegan, it was just like the morning star. 
it, that's yeah, that's very, very different. Um, not How many years like ago the, was that? When did you go uh, vegan? Um, it'll be 12 years this okay. summer. So things have changed very quickly. Yeah, I talked to people right. that have been vegan for over 20 years. I can't even imagine. That <laughs> must have been really difficult. Yeah. I'm also thinking about, you know, we're talking about meat specifically, but for dairy, now they do have whey protein that's not coming from an animal that they're starting to use in products. One of my favorite ice cream places in Cincinnati, um, I went to residency there, is called Graders. And they just released a product where they're using this factory-made whey protein that's not coming from animals to make a vegan ice cream, but it's not dairy-free, which can also be very confusing for some people, especially those with allergies. <laughs> but so it, it does throw in some complexity, but it gives people more choice. Yes, you're right. That's another, that's a whole nother interesting area that that's called precision fermentation. You know, like the way a lot of us take a vitamin B supplement, for example, that might come from a bacteria that is fed nutrients and through its own processes, it, it releases B12 that then we then harness. Folks are doing that, but instead of creating bacteria that make B12, they're creating bacteria that make like a, like a whey protein, for example. And so it's, you're, you're really right though, and I appreciate you, sh you giving that perspective that we have a long way to go, but it is amazing what has happened with this food technology. You know, you can go into a lot of fast food restaurants and there'll be a Beyond Burger or Impossible Burger. And um, it's also inspiring how alternative milks have become very popular. It's like 15% of the market, right? Like almond, and oat, and cashew. And it, I imagine 50 years ago, it was not like that. So. But, and that's why I think the history of meat is so meaningful, right? Because we see how it was really technology that made a lot of these changes where people started to eat so much meat. And so perhaps we can use that same tool, but in this case, hopefully for good. Yeah. Well, what are some indications that there is hope? It's a good question. Um, Look, I meet people every day who speak out about these issues, who care. I also am a, a teacher, so I'm an adjunct lecturer, and I teach a couple different classes at different universities. So every year I have like 80 students per semester, and they get it. You know, they're more receptive to issues around environmental issues and their concern for animals. Uh, maybe less so health, because I remember when I was young, I didn't care about my health. I cared more about other things, right? So when you're older, you start to care more about your, you know, your your functioning of life. Um, but certainly the environmental issues and animal issues are ways in ways that, for example, my parents don't care about. I mean, my dad actively jokes about, uh, and, if, and if you read the book or watch the film, you know, he says things like, I care more about the temperature of the house than the temperature of the planet, for example. So, you know, I think the older generation has, has is, is a little less likely to be um, interested in these issues. So when I'm not feeling hopeful, and I mean this sincerely, um, spending time with young people is a great way to feel hope because you realize that a lot of change happens when new generations come in and see the world in a different way and, and inherit a world that they want to change. So that genuinely brings me a lot of hope. Um, I also think that there's just so many strategies on the table here. And we've been talking about food technology, you know, offering these alternatives, but there are a lot of advocates and organizations that are pursuing different strategies. So they're trying to work within the political system, or they're trying to legally hold factory farms accountable, or they're educators and communicators, and certain documentaries become popular. And, and 
you know, though it's this is a really difficult thing to do, um, it's just inspiring to me that there are thousands, I'm sure tens of thousands of advocates in small and large ways who are trying to make change within their their family, within their community, starting um, opening vegan restaurants. I mean, I meet people who just one day decide, you know, I'm going to do something. I'm going to open a vegan restaurant in my community. And that's just so wonderful because it's so concrete. You can say, I fed, you know, hundreds of thousands of people over the years um, vegan food. And that saved so much water and so much land. It was nice to animals and it's good for people's health and so on. So it's important to surround yourself with some of the good activities that are taking place as well. Um, and it's tricky because I'm a realist. So I want to balance my interest in being honest about the challenges that we face, but also celebrate some of the progress that we're making. And it'll be really interesting to see what the next five or 10 years looks like in terms of all of these different interventions. Um, I will say one other major success that we're having, we are increasing the number of animals that have slightly higher welfare conditions. So for example, there are more chickens out of cages, for example, like you see cage-free eggs, for example. Now, many, most of those chickens are still in sheds and all those other variables I talked about are still there and it's still a horrific system. But the analogy I often hear is like the last time you've been on a flight, you know, imagine having to sit in that seat for like the duration of the entire flight that you could never get up. And mind you, that might only be six or 10 or 12 hours. Imagine that being for weeks of your life, like you might find with a chicken. That's what it's like being in a cage and I'm sure way worse at least the chickens are out of the, you know, some chickens are out of cages, right? So it's the more, it's the more chickens are in cages than not. But we've seen a dramatic rise in the number that are. And that's because of consumer pressure. That's because of nonprofits that have put a lot of pressure on these companies. And it's a recognition from the companies themselves that consumers don't want to support chickens being in cages. So there is hope in humanity in small ways that we can at least agree on some basic tenets on what is a moral way to exist in this world. Yeah, I think those are all great points. And I'll add too that for the people that they don't have the bandwidth, the personality or the interest in being vocal advocates, just leading by example, because it could really spark a conversation. You go out to lunch with a friend and you order the Beyond Burger and your friend's like, oh, why did you order that? And then you have a conversation or even if they don't ask you about it, it plants a seed like, oh, that's something I could do too. I think that quietly leading by example is also a really great way to spread that activism without having to be like in people's faces or, or have to go on social media or do any of these things. So that's definitely for some people that don't have the personality type or, <laughs> you know, so, communicating it out to the whole world. You're so right. I often say, don't be a private reducitarian. You know, if you can encourage people around you to make small changes, and even in the casual ways you're describing, like, for example, my wife and I had a, had a wedding, and we decided that we were going to make the food vegan, even though neither of us are vegan. And just being in a situation where people are going to be happy to celebrate in a moment, I don't know, you have a potluck, or you're going to some birthday party, bring a vegan item, and to your point, maybe it'll generate conversation. So there's lots of non-threatening um, sort of easy entry ways to help be an advocate for this. And I appreciate you bringing those up. Hey, are you kind of curious about microgreens and including microgreens in your diet, but you're not sure where to start and you're not sure how to do it? I love my Hamama microgreen 
grower. It's so easy, it's so convenient. So this is how it works. Basically, they send you the kit and it has this little seed quilt, okay? And then you soak the seed quilt in the water and in a few days, you see your tiny little baby sprouts growing and a few days after that, you can start eating them and it's so fun. And you can tell them that you're eating them and they're really happy that you're eating them and your body's really happy that you're eating them. But here's the best part because I've told y'all before, I'm lazy. So I don't wanna have to use any mental energy that I don't need to and they send you seed quilts every month. So you don't run out, you can change what seed quilts you want to try. So here's some examples of some of the seed quilts they have. Hearty broccoli, refreshing cabbage, energizing kale, spicy daikon radish, super salad mix. You can even get wheatgrass, you can get culinary cilantro, or even hot wasabi mustard. So there's lots to choose from. They have different flavors. They're so cute and they're health promoting. So you can get a good dose of antioxidants and it's really beautiful. I also use them for garnish when I'm making soups and salads and different bowls. You can impress your guests. But like I said, it's going to be low energy cost on your part and it's actually not that expensive either. The other thing that I use from Hamama is a green onion growing kit, which is really cool because it can decrease your food waste. So you buy the green onions and then the little part that has the root, the white part at the bottom, you stick it in these little holes and then you just put the water in there and it grows and then you can keep eating the same green onions. You just go with your little scissors and you chop it off and you put it into your food. So if you wanna give it a try, you've been curious about microgreens and different ways that you can grow your own food, check out Hamama. You can find it in my show notes for a link to get 15% off, or you can go to dryami.com forward slash shop so that you can find the link and get 15% off your first order. Happy growing. Do you love Veggie Doctor Radio, but you're sick of listening to ads? Join the Plantscription. The Plantscription is a monthly membership where you have access to ad-free episodes of Veggie Doctor Radio every week. But that's not all. You also have access to a monthly live Q&A with me and a monthly live book club. You also get access to writings and musings and free giveaways. It is such a great deal. Right now, it's only $5 a month to join the Planscription. If you want to join, go to planscription.substack.com or go to the show notes to follow the link. Join the Planscription today and join me in this plantastic community. I love it. What do you wish more people knew? I wish people knew that after eating more fruits and vegetables and whole grains and legumes, you actually can learn to enjoy them. Because I have, to, I have to say, I really want to emphasize, like I really grew up not eating fruits and vegetables. And this is not like a shtick. Like, I genuinely didn't. And my, my, my mom doesn't eat fruits and vegetables really to this day. And my dad eats a little bit more than he used to, in, in, in part because of the, the conversations I work with that I do, which is really, really awesome. Um, but when I first decided that I wanted to you know, st- eat less meat, I was just eating like pasta and pizza and like the stuff that you would imagine that a vegetarian like eating fast food would eat, right? And it took me a while to realize like, oh, like this does taste kind of weird. Like I never had kale before or I don't know how to pronounce quinoa or 
Um, I've never had an avocado before, like my parents. And this is like an amazing thing. There's a, a scene in the documentary that's mentioned in the book where my parents have an avocado for the first time. They never had guacamole before, which is shocking to a lot of people. But yet that's the experience of a lot of people. And I, I'm not shocked because I know growing up, we didn't eat avocados. We didn't eat really any fruits or vegetables. So what I found so fascinating upon reflection, because I didn't know it was going to happen, was after like a couple weeks, maybe even a couple months of, of slowly introducing more foods that I'd really never had, you know, eating more, I don't know, Brussels sprouts and asparagus and mushrooms and onions and lentils. And there's just so many options of, of plant-based foods. You actually learn to enjoy them. It's different than eating a bag of Doritos. It's different than going to McDonald's and getting a McWhopper. You know, it's not as salty. It's not as sugary. It's not as fatty. It doesn't compete on that variable. But there is something like refreshing about having a kale smoothie in a way that, um, you know, a KFC bucket of chicken simply can't offer. And so I really wish that I knew that and I wish I could feel it. But at least knowing intellectually that that's the experience of a lot of people, I think is encouraging. And if people are willing to give it a couple weeks to, and there's a lot of science behind this, like your taste buds actually change. Um, and I'm sure you know all about this. Um, that to me was a really pivotal insight. Like it wouldn't be, I don't want to say torture, but it wouldn't be uncomfortable forever. Because, and that's, that's the thing that gets me kind of agitated is I have a lot of compassion for people that are in this situation. I know what it's like to be a person who's never had these foods. And it's not as simple as just eat more kale. It's not. There's a lot of fear and emotions and real experiences and that this just feels weird. It feels weird to your body, too. You might not be used to having that much fiber before because there's no fiber, basically, in, in, in most of these meats. So I have a lot of compassion and that's where I lead from. I'm so happy that there are vegans and vegetarians on the planet, but they're already doing their part. They're not, they're not really my interest. My interest is omnivores, and I understand the omnivore experience pretty well, and I have a lot of understanding of what they go through. And I think that was, a, that was a, something I, I hope, if there's anybody listening, that it's going to be okay. You just got to stick it out for a couple of weeks, and then you're going to discover this whole new world that you didn't know about before. Uh, that sings to my heart so much. And, you know, my podcast is called Veggie Doctor Radio, but I'm a child of the 80s. So I'm sure I went weeks, maybe months without having a fruit or vegetable when I was a kid. I mean, I remember it was just like sugary cereal with milk, um, you know, being like, well, I guess I did have beans because I'm Panamanian. But besides that, it was just like all processed foods and meat and fried foods and fruits and vegetables were not an emphasis in my diet as a child. So I also, like you, had to learn to incorporate those, learn about all these interesting, different whole grains and, you know, different fruits and different vegetables and how to cook them. But you're right. There is a process called neuroadaptation where it's not just your taste buds, but it's your brain. Like your brain is actually adapting and it's a superpower that humans have. And sometimes it might only be a few days, sometimes a few weeks, but if you continue to incorporate those foods into your diet, you are going to learn to like them because that is also how children learn to like foods. Adults have to go through the exact same process. So it's not about being, you know, ashamed or forcing yourself or, or you know, any of those kind of 
harsh methods. It's more about how can we incorporate more of those foods and start to learn to like them in a way that brings us joy and well-being. So I love, I love that you brought that Thank up. Thank you. That's great. Okay. So one thing I've been asking my guests recently is, do you have a morning routine? Something I'm fascinated with. That's a good question. I don't know if it's a routine. I guess we could talk about it and figure it out. You tell me if it's a routine. Um, I get up at different times during, during the week. So depending, you know, it could be, could be sometimes I, I teach at 8.30 a.m. So I'm up at 6 a.m. Some days I'm sleeping in until like 8 a.m. Um, I usually will let my dogs out in the backyard. They're really excited to go outside and do their thing and hang out there. Um, I make a matcha latte. So I'm not, I'm not having, we were talking earlier about how I think it was your partner having coffee all the time. I switched to tea because that has been working well for me. Um, I'm addicted to my phone. So I'm probably on my phone way too much, but a lot of my work happens on my phone. So in the morning I'm checking Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn and Instagram and all the social media platforms and I'm responding to emails. Um, and then, then I do things like shower and brush my teeth. And then I start, then I start work, you know, work and doing my thing. And then, um, after, you know, after feeding the dogs and my wife and I sometimes will go for a walk after feeding them. Um, and we'll do another walk later in the day. And I'm really great. It's, you know, in, in telling this story, I'm really grateful for my dogs because my dogs ground me and I don't have children. So maybe it's like that with children, although maybe parents can say it's a grounding experience. I'm not sure. I don't think um, they would experience it yeah. as grounding. Nope. <laughs> yeah. Well, dogs, dogs in a way are, you know, they get me out of my head and, and into the moment and just like, yeah, Cooper, you know, Toby, they're just so excited to be outside and like smell the grass and run up to the person. There's just a simplicity and joy um, to their lives that allows me to see, you know, you mentioned you're an optimist. It allows me to see some of the brighter sides of, of life through their lens. And that brings me a lot of joy. Um, and um, I'm really grateful for that. So that's my simple. And I often have, in terms of breakfast, I'm pretty straightforward. I either have avocado toast, um, I have oatmeal uh, or I make a smoothie. So it could be like spinach and banana, blueberry, very healthy. I add some, some chia seeds and like this is by me and like chia seeds. I would never have had that a decade ago. It's, it's, it's cool. You discover all these new things. So, yeah. Yeah. The only chia I knew growing up were the chia pets that they <laughs> sold at the, at the store. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's like our world has completely changed in the past 30 years. But yeah, I love that. And I love how you, you talk about how your dogs ground you because I totally agree. Like what's wonderful about dogs is that they truly live in the moment. Like they live in the moment and they teach us to live in the moment too. And my husband's always bringing up over and over again. It doesn't matter how long you're gone. If it's five minutes or one hour or a day, when you get back, your dog acts like you were gone for eternity. And they're so happy to see you every single time. And it's like the most gratifying thing ever. <laughs> yeah, they're really, they're really the best. They really are. Brian, this has been fantastic. I am so grateful for your time and the work you do. And, and thank you for your unique perspective and your advocacy in this area. I definitely think it's so valuable and it's so needed. If my listeners would like to connect with you, can you please tell us where we can connect with you? Tell us about your new book and your documentary with the same name, where we can find that um, so that we can learn from you. Absolutely. Well, the main organization that I run is Reducitarian Foundation, and you can learn more about our work at reducitarian.org, so R-E-D-U-C-E, 
T-A-R-I-A-N.org. We do have a new book and a new film called Meet Me Halfway. It's spelled M-E-A-T. And you can go to meetmehalfway.org to learn more about that. And anyone is welcome to email me anytime. I'm just at brian, B-R-I-A-N, at reducitarian.org. And you can follow us and me and all the usual social media platforms if you're interested in learning more. Oh, and last thing is that we have an annual conference. So our next conference is in Denver, but we've been in New York and LA and DC and San Francisco, and we will have a new annual conference each and every year. And nothing would make me happier than to see you all in real person. And thank you so much for having me on and for all your work. It's such a joy. I really appreciate you and everything that you do. Absolutely. When is your next conference? When's the one in Denver? The next one is October 27th to the 29th, October 27th to 29th in Denver, Colorado. It's going to be a great time. Hundreds of advocates across all these different industries come together to figure out how we can make this happen, how we can end factory farming. Wow. You're doing really, really important and valuable work. So thank you so much for all the effort you put into that. Okay. Before you go, leave us with your top three tips for someone that wants to reduce their meat intake. Number one, for sure, is keep it simple. Um, I have a cookbook, so I'm, I'm okay with someone trying to try out a fancy recipe, but I really mean in my daily life, I eat the same foods I used to eat, but I swap in plant-based ingredients. So I still have burritos. I just don't add the chicken anymore. I add avocado instead, right? Or I still have pasta. I just make it primavera instead of meatballs. Um, keep in mind that it's not all or nothing. It's really important to remember that the idea here is to eat as many sustainable, humane, and healthy meals as possible. But I still have Doritos. You know, I still occasionally have animal products. Um, I don't want people to give up just because they find it impossible to be perfect or pure, however you might define that. So keeping in mind that this is a, it's a journey, it's, it's a marathon, right? Try to eat as many plant-based meals as you can. And if those can be whole plant-based meals, that's even better. Um, and the third, don't worry about protein. Um, we get way too much protein in the United States. If you eat food, you're getting protein. I, I haven't heard of anyone who's had a protein deficiency. There's protein in everything. If you're worried about having more protein for some reason, you can have nuts, you can have beans, um, but you really don't need to worry about it. It's really not a thing. So those would be my three tips. Ugh, I love it. That was perfect. Brian, thank you so much again for all the work you do. Thank you for being a wonderful guest. I love this discussion. I know my listeners will love it too. And I hope that you have a very fantastic day. Likewise. Thank you so much. Hey, veggie lover. I hope that you loved today's episode. Will you take a second and do me a huge favor? Please subscribe to my podcast so that you never miss an episode. You're the reason I'm here and I want to share it all with you. Thank you for listening and have a plantastic day. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker. 
engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.